I flew east on the backside of this little ridge into another coastal valley and immediately got below the ridge top. I made like three attempts to get back over that ridge. And on the last one... Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I am your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 61. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. On this episode of the podcast, we talk to Walt Rogers, Discus 2A pilot and weather guru. Disney's The Boy Who Flew With Condors TV episode in 1967 was the magical elixir that hooked him on soaring. From the club flying days at El Mirage Field in Southern California in the 70s to becoming a contest pilot in standard class gliders in the 1980s, Walter describes his journey of soaring adventures. Walt's career as a meteorologist has given him an interesting perspective for the sport. Other aviation projects include the Voyager Around the World flight, Perlin 2, U.S. World Gliding Championship forecast, and numerous other gliding events. Before we get to our guest today, I would like to send out a big thank you to our new Patreon pilot, Brett Ross. Thank you for supporting the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that, patreon.com slash soaringthesky. Walt Rogers, welcome to Soaring the Sky. I'm so happy to have you here on the podcast today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great this morning, Chuck. Now, where are you flying out of? I live in Palmdale, California, but I fly out of uh, Skylark North, which is in Tehachapi. Southern California between the Mojave Desert and the San Joaquin Valley. It's a nice little valley location. The gateway to the Sierras. And that's another story. That's another story. That's the, one of the main reasons I fly out of there because it's some of the most spectacular flying in the West. Uh, a routine flight for us in the summertime is Mount Whitney and back. And it doesn't take that long. When did your aviation journey begin and how did you get into gliders? Well, that's interesting as I've been reviewing my history going back 53 years, 1967, right when I graduated from high school here in the San Fernando Valley. What really triggered my interest in soaring was that my dad was building a home-built aircraft a few years before, uh, a baby ace, an open cockpit, one of the first open cockpit home-built aircraft in the United States at that time. There was a sh- TV show called The Wonderful World of Disney. And on that February 1967 episode, one week, was The Boy Who Flew with the Condors. That was the kicker for me that got me entranced with gliding. I took a ride, and in the summer of 1967, started introduction uh, instruction at the El Mirage, California. What did you start flying then when you started flying gliders? What was the aircraft? Uh, it was a Schweitzer 233, just uh, aerotoes and uh, open cockpit tow planes. I transitioned uh, fairly quickly that summer 
And I think the following summer, uh, getting my private glider uh, reading with Ross Briglev, I think I did some initial solos with autotoes on the El Mirage Dry Lake. At that time, El Mirage Field and, and through the 70s and 80s was just a mecca for soaring in Southern California. Just three or four clubs and great deal of activity. Uh, Paul Bickle for the NASA and Einar and Volson, test pilots, all my idols at that time. Well, what a great time to fly. Yes, it was wonderful. Um, just, you know, I, the sounds and smells of sleeping on an open trailer at night with the alfalfa fields and uh, oh, it brings back wonderful memories. When did you get into competition flying? Well, that happened a, a bit later. I um, graduated from UCLA with a bachelor's in meteorology, took a, a stint at Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin for about a year and a half, where I almost got my master's degree. On the way back, my new boss with the National Weather Service uh, in Sacramento said, hey, Walt, how would you like to hang out with Doug Armstrong at the national championships at Minden and help with the weather? Oh, my God. I, I got an opportunity to, to meet George Moffat, A.J. Smith, Ben Green, all these idols of the time. Something just tripped in my mind. It was the thought under a wing with some newfound friends it suddenly dawned on me that I could do this and that I was going to fly competition. So um, around 1980, I purchased my first glider, an ASW-15B. Oh, nice glider. Oh, it was a beautiful glider. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the JS-1s and JS-3s, but that droopy nose is just gorgeous. How did that glider perform? It was a competitive glider at that time in standard class. I had my... Actually, my first contest in Bishop, California, I bought the glider from a, an, an ER doctor, Dr. Chuck Fisher from um, Sacramento, and uh, he was buying an ASW-20, so he let me buy his glider. The first contest in Bishop, I won it. Just this new upstart young kid flying the wings off, and uh, on one of the days, a windy days, Chuck Fisher was still trying to start the task as I was finishing it, so I had a great introduction. I, I still remember I won a case of Moulton's beer. That was wonderful. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Made you want to fly another one. <laughs> yes, it did. So from that point on, I was uh, flying a couple of contests a year. I, I tried to get into mo na nationals most years. Uh, I don't remember all the details. And then I also worked with some of my friends in Tehachapi, at that time, and we were trying to figure out a way to do large triangles and do long out cross countries in the Sierras and Western Nevada. So I had some long flights there on the, on the order of 500 miles through the early 1980s. Can you tell me about one of those long flights that really sticks out in your mind? Uh, one of my flights was, I think it was about a four or 500 mile flight halfway to Minden and into southwestern Nevada somewhere. I don't remember the details. I can't quite recollect. I, I do remember on one occasion uh, landing on the way back on a dry lake and calling my crew, uh, Steve Slaughter, to come and get me. I told him to check flight service, and actually, this is rare in gliding. I filed a flight plan and with flight service station, made reports along the way, well, all he had to do was check with flight service, and he knew where I ended up. So uh, way before the time of tracking and GPS and all that stuff. 
it's much easier now with all the satellite trackers to to see where the pilots are. But back in those days, you know, you had an aircraft radio. If you didn't have one of those, uh, you needed to be able to walk out to the highway to flag somebody down. But now with ADSB, did you know, uh, Chuck, that this season I'll have ADSB out, and there is an Arian satellite service that's tracking ADSB, and I think it holds great opportunities for uh, emergency tracking because uh, the satellite makes the reception of it ubiquitous anywhere in the region you're flying in. And we have a lot of remote areas out here in the desert southwest. Now, how has your weather background and experience helped you with soaring as well as helping others? I know you've conducted numerous stand-up weather briefings we talked about for the U.S. regional and national soaring championships, as well as some other projects you've done. Can you share some of those projects? Well, um, I started in the days of uh, overhead projectors and grease pencils with facsimile maps, preparing myself for weather briefings. Being a National Weather Service meteorologist, I started uh, about the same time in 1967 with National Weather Service. I had a great background in operations and retired of 43 years of experience. A lot of pilots ask me, uh, gee, your weather background must be fantastic. It must make you a fantastic pilot with a great advantage. And you know what I tell them is this. The weather background is important, but the psychology of racing and the focus and the attention is far more important. So my weather background doesn't necessarily help as much as people think it might. I am pretty good, though, at picking the days with, with the best weather and which ones to avoid. One of the projects that was early in my career for doing weather support was the 1983 World Gliding Championships in Hobbs, New Mexico. I had an opportunity to help out with that. I was not the prime weather briefer at the time, but I got a chance to hang out with the, the world greats at that time. I remember wrangling a lot of facsimile maps. Back in those days, uh, in the 80s, even in the early in the 90s, we were working with radio sound balloon soundings. And I knew how to decode all those and hand plot them on a, on a diagram to get a soaring thermal height, all that kind of stuff. It's changed radically now, and I, I, I don't think I've ever plotted. I haven't plotted a, a radio sound sounding for a gliding competition in many, many years because it's all calculated for you now. You can get those soundings and even the observations. It's much easier, of course, with the Internet, Dr. Jack and SkySight and all those, those sources. One of the things that my approach to soaring weather forecasting has taken is I look at the big picture with what, how it's going to set the stage for thermal activity or thunderstorms or cloud cover. I'm not real big on adding a lot of indices and technical information in a soaring weather forecast. Being a pilot myself, I appreciate it. The pilots want to know, what is the day? Give me the bottom line. And uh, that is one of the uh, characteristics of my weather briefings that distinguishes from other people who do the same thing. It's important to get the big scale view. So keep it basic and get out and fly, right? Keep it basic, get out and fly. You know, you can have a, a very accurate forecast of thermal heights and things like that and a lifted index and thermal index and all of this stuff. But it's really too easy to get lost in the details. You really need to just look at the big picture 
And really, what upsets a, a good soaring day, if you're going to be looking for one or seeing one in the forecast? It's, it's a thunderstorm activity or a cloud deck that moves over. So I'm very sensitive to these sort of things and attributes of the soaring day that would uh, make it less than optimum for a, for a great flight. I believe it was the Voyager around the world, 1986, I think, when we were talking earlier. You were a part of the weather team, right? Exactly. Yeah. At that time, uh, I was uh, had just started working uh, in the early 80s with uh, a unit of the National Weather Service called the Center Weather Service Unit. There's four of us at each of the 22 air traffic control centers. And I got a call from one of our retired directors of the National Weather Service and the Science Division. He had a great project for us to participate in. He wanted to know, Dr. Len Snellman, would you guys like to help us do this weather support for the Voyager around the world flight? I thought, what a fantastic opportunity. It was going to be located at Mojave, California, which is about a 35-minute drive north of where I live. And there was a command center, and I got a chance to hang out with the Burt Rattans and all the uh, Dick Rattan, Gina Yeagers, and all the volunteers that set off that project. One of my colleagues, Larry Birch, who was a forecaster with me in my office, he became the, one of the lead forecasters for briefings, and I took care of the technical attributes of it, the satellite machine that was collecting satellite photos and imagery from all over the world. We wrangled for many months facsimile maps looking at patterns around the world. A really, really extremely challenging job at that time. The Internet wasn't available. We looked at satellite photos and all the maps that we could find to figure out what the best path was. I do recall that Dick Rattan wanted to take the flight westbound out of um, Southern California, taking off at Edwards Air Force Base, cross the Pacific, and then cross the southern Indian Ocean and go around the tip of Africa. He did not want to fight with the thunderstorms over Central Africa. Well, what happened was the project got delayed for about three or four months when it, the Voyager aircraft flew, uh, broke a prop in flight, and uh, everything was put on hold. Suddenly, one day, Dick Rattan came in, and, and I was cleaning up the weather map display. These are paper maps that were hung on a wall there at the little office in Mojave. And he said, we're ready to go. How does the weather look? Oh, my gosh. So I said, well, you're not going to be able to go around the south part of Africa because the monsoon had already set in and there's too much cloud cover. You'll have to cross Central Africa. So they changed the entire route to cross Central Africa. And at that time, what was interesting was the people supporting him were making paper maps and pasting them together. So they had to redo all the maps across that region and, and take the chance to finish the project by uh, crossing that huge landmass. That project, the Voyager, was just one of the most phenomenal flights, I think, ever in aviation. It was so risky and so, so prone to possible upsets, which there were plenty of. Keeping ahead of the Voyager with its weather, cloud cover, and thunderstorms was very challenging, and I'll never forget that. My colleague, uh, Larry Birch, and I were running a weather unit at the Air Traffic Control Center. There were four of us two other uh, employees, and somehow we managed to get the schedule changed so that one or the other of us could be out at Mojave on rotating shifts. I don't know how we did this. It did help 
that one of the lead managers of a National Weather Service took time off to come out and volunteer as well. Wagner was his name. And uh, the tweaking of our work schedule was not a perfectly legitimate thing that we did with government time, but somehow we got away with it because when the Voyager completed the flight, we were invited by the president, the Voyager team, to come out and accept an award. So the whole Voyager project was full of volunteers who just dedicated their time and efforts in, in, in magnificent ways that are just about unheard of in these times. So fascinating project. I, was, I would drive back and forth. That wasn't a long trip, but uh, we just took turns taking care of the weather briefing. How did that project compare to something more recent? I mean, you were part of the Pearl N2, right? Yes, I was part of the Pearl N2. Uh, Jim Payne, uh, the lead pilot, uh, and I have been friends for many years. We, we flew in contests together and even out at El Mirage Field when he started flying gliders. Um, I was invited out for the season in 2018 to El Calafate with my colleague uh, Dan, Dan Gudgel. And Dan did the first half of the, the project period, and I did the second half. Miraculously, the second half, late August to early, mid to September 2018, was the best wave, stratospheric waves they've ever seen down there. I was the forecaster for the week where they set the three world altitude records. Internet was a bit challenging down in this small town in southern Argentina. However, we were able to, to get two computer models showing the wave activity and satellite photos. So the internet was available. We relied on that. In 2019, I, I elected to stay home here in Palmdale and do the re briefing remotely, which points to an uh, increasing trend in uh, doing weather support for soaring. It's much easier now to, to do remote briefings, and I'm getting more and more comfortable with that. Not surprising that that's probably going to become more in common. The day they set the world altitude record to 76,000 feet, the stratospheric waves, the mountain waves, call it that if you like, were amplifying the higher up you went. And it was very obvious from this because there was a radiosonde balloon sounding launch that morning. And when the radiosonde ascends up into 100,000 feet or so, they, you can track the ascent rate of the balloon. When the balloon goes through these waves, the amplitude of up and down drafts shows up. And on that particular day, the amplitude was the highest I've ever seen. It was indicating 1,500 feet a minute and increasing in amplitude the higher up the balloon went. So I recall telling the pilots, you know, this is going to be the, be the day. We will get right back with our guests, but right now our soaring safety segment. Barbara talks with us about what she learned flying the wave. It's something totally different from uh, thermal flying. It gives a pilot more experience and it makes you a better pilot to experience something totally different. That's the same with ridge flying. I think I just learned in the wave that weather and nature is really strong and uh, you can only go with the flow and you really can't fight it. So you have to think about this during the way flying, that you really can't fight the wind. You have to go with it and you have to go with it smart not to get into a trouble. So it taught me that nature is really powerful. 
Thank you, Barbara. And if you'd like to hear more of our chat with Barbara, join us next week on Soaring the Sky. If you'd like to sponsor our Soaring Safety segment of the week, contact me at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Now back to our guests. And actually, I believe saying that to all three of the flights for all, there were three different co-pilots, uh, Tim Gardner, Morgan Sandracock, and uh, Miguel. Uh, and each one of them set a world record on that week. So uh, the camaraderie down there in El Calafate was, was phenomenal. The people supporting Perlan are technically extremely talented and dedicated to the, the uh, project. So I'm really happy to be part of that project and their success. When we were talking earlier, I told you about Miguel being on the podcast and some amazing stories. Yeah, the... Um, Unfortunately, the 2019 season had a phenomenon called the stratospheric warming, which broke up the westerlies in the troposphere and made them what we call high amplitude. So they weren't consistent for producing these high stratospheric waves. And However, if we have a normal season in the future again, it looks to me like it's unquestionable that they will be able to reach the approximate 90,000 design limit for the Perlan aircraft. These high amplitude stratospheric waves are very common down there when the westerlies are right, which is a good part of the time in the winter, in the southern hemisphere winter. So I, I'm, I'm quite sure we can get down there again with all the enormous logistics that they should be able to uh, top out with one of the goals. But that's not the only goal of the Perlin project. The other goal is to uh, bring science and mentorship to this young and talented students in the STEM programs with uh, things like their CubeSats and uh, other research that could benefit from the, the Perland project. Yeah, the STEM program is absolutely an amazing program. Absolutely. In the later years now, I've been uh, getting more active in um, trying to return to soaring my experiences. And uh, about three or four years ago, I, I bought a quarter share of a duo discus. Unfortunately, haven't flown it much in th- this last year. Old man's disease, you know, rotator cuff repair in the first half of the glider season. Nothing serious. But uh, I want to start flying more and more with uh, glider pilots and, and introducing them to cross country. And so do my partners, Jim Staniforth and the other two partners in the glider. So what is maybe one of the strangest things or or coolest things you've ever seen from the cockpit? Let's see. Well, out here in the Mojave Desert throughout my career, I I can't think of one particular flight. It's not coming to me. But one of the things that's unique out here in the Mojave is we're on the boundary between the coastal climates where the marine air filters into the desert through the mountains and mountain passes. And the high plateau of the Great Basin states, Nevada, Utah, where in the summertime with bright sun, the air mass just cooks with really high, strong thermal activity to 18,000 feet. So I grew up in this area near El Mirage, 20 miles or so from the mountains to bounding Los Angeles Basin. And we have a freeway network of shear lines and convergence zones. And I've become very good, and so have a lot of pilots, at just navigating in these shear lines in the Mojave. You can really treat it like a freeway system, and I grew up in the L.A., Los Angeles area, commuting to UCLA and traveling around that area. You can use these shear lines to just get your way around throughout the Mojave Desert. So oftentimes, it's a 
a strong climb in, in the shear line to 13, 14, 15,000 feet, and then cruising along in a big arc till you intersect the next shear line, then a long glide across to 20, 30 miles to the other side of it. And uh, some of those are the most interesting and uh, memorable flights that I've had flying here in the Mojave Desert. Have you had any flights that were maybe on the scary side and it taught you something and you were able to get safely back home? But Well, in my early days of flying, uh, when I was living in Sacramento, I was flying with the Silverado Soaring Club out of Calistoga, just north of the San Francisco Bay Area. And they had a 134 there, and I did some local flying around it. And they had a beautiful little ridge right near the airport where you could go back and forth. And where I learned to fly in the flatlands of the El Mirage and the Mojave Desert, there was no ridge soaring. So I was able to ridge soar this little hill, line of hills just east of the airport. And that was rather boring. Well, one day, Jim Enderbo, who ran the uh, Calistoga soaring, mainly a ride, but also a training operation, and Rick Enderbo, his son, were flying. Jim in an ASW-20 and Rick in a PIK. And I was flying back and forth on the ridge. Well, one of them climbed up in a thermal and went east. And I thought, oh, here's an opportunity to try something new and adventuresome. So I flew east on the backside of this little ridge into another coastal valley and immediately got below the ridge top and was reminded very quickly in my back of my mind, oh my God, I'm not supposed to take this glider cross country. They haven't given me approval yet. So that task for that day became to get back, get back into the Calistoga Valley. It turned out, I think, I think Rick Ingerbo landed out that day, but I, try, I made like three attempts to get back over that ridge. And on the last one, I was just coming up to the edge of it and didn't know if I was going to clear the ridge until the last you know, half of a mile and went around this little rock. There I was on the familiar, stable, reliable ridge. And I'll never forget that because I thought, boy, that was a bit dicey. And it always comes to mind when I have to make those decisions for uh, looking at my margins. That one was testing that margin perhaps just a bit too much. But Tawhees, the next time, wouldn't be an issue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I... Even though I've been flying 53 years, at the beginning of every season, I I really think carefully about, okay, let's ease back into my currency. I tend to not fly much over the winter parts of the year. So I I get myself prepared and get get the rust worked out. Really important to not get arrogant about your flying because we can all make mistakes and uh, test those margins. So I'm very wary of that. Are you involved in anything with your local club to promote soaring? I'm not directly involved with local clubs. There aren't any local clubs here in Southern California near where I live anymore. Uh, Antelope Valley Club, one exception. But what I have been active with is uh, a national show convention for the last three years. It's called the Academy of Model Aeronautics. Um, They've partnered with the Soaring Society and graciously offered a f- gratis uh, booth space. And for seven or I think it's, it was eight years in the Ontario Convention Center, which is just east of Los Angeles, um, they've put on this national show. And I took over the running of that booth for the last three years. 
And it was my, my way of returning to the soaring community, uh, introducing new people, young people, lots of old men with white hair still participating at these, at these shows from the modeling community. But uh, I, I'm trying to learn more about clubs and glider operations. Chuck, I've been a private glider pilot, racing pilot from 1980 on, and it's only in about the last four or five years that I've decided, you know what, I need to put my toe back into clubs and commercial operations and really listen and learn about what's going on. So that's been my way of returning to the community. Certainly, we need to have more workshops for uh, cross-country camps in our area. Southern California used to be one of the major activity spots, meccas for cross-country and, and competition pilots and flying. But in, in the last 10 to 15 years, things have pretty much dried up. And uh, there aren't that many clubs in Southern California. So owning a portion of the Duo Discus uh, in the last couple of years, I've introduced a few new pilots to that. And so has my partner. And so that's going to be my activity for the, for the future, sharing time with my own single place, Discus 2A, cross-country flying, and a few contests. What do you think we could do to get soaring, to get the interest up from where it is now? Well, I was listening to uh, Dan Sazen talk about this just the other day in one of your immediately prior podcasts, and I completely agree with that. We need to form groups to bring the pilots that did their solos and did their initial training in a club or a commercial operation and get them out to the glider port to learn about cross-country flying. So forming these cross-country introductory camps and flying with them in a a high-performance two-place ship, that's going to be the activity I think that's going to help quite a bit. The other thing is uh, I agree with Dan Sazen about Condor for simulation. I think that's a great tool for getting initial familiarity with the concepts of cross-country and racing flying. So I, I like those approaches. And lastly, I've become more interested in winch flying and equipped my Discus 2A with a CG tow hook. Unfortunately, there really aren't any winch operations near where I live, so I haven't been able to stay current with it. But I think that the trend with increasing use of motor gliders or electric sustainer gliders coupled with winch launching could make the sport a lot less expensive as far as the cost of the the tows from aircraft. So those three areas are, are... the ones that I think are are promising for increasing our activity, interest in soaring. Do you have any advice on how we could be better and safer pilots? Well, prepare yourself for every season. Offer yourself your own flight instruction, simulator training. Uh, I think using Condor and uh, to get yourself back in the cockpit is, is a really good way to get yourself started. Of course, the most important thing is getting your your butt back in the glider seat and actually doing the flying, setting goals and making sure that you can do safe patterns. Those sort of things I think are important for uh, the safety aspects. I remember a number of years ago, there were uh, back in the saddle uh, get togethers or these are seminars here in region 12, which is Southern California, where we would go over what's important for safety and for enjoyment of soaring 
And I remember Jim Payne speaking at one of these events saying, when something else goes wrong and you're in the cockpit, wind your watch. Uh, what? What are you talking about? Well, what he means is don't make any snap decisions. If something's unusual in your flight situation, take a pause, a deep breath, and assess the situation so that you don't make it worse. That, I think, is important. Taking your situational awareness and make sure you're not zeroed in or focused with tunnel vision. All those, I think, are important for improving safety and gliding. Walter, thanks for joining me today. Do you have anything you wanted to add? I've been torn with, um, I'm 70 years old. I turned 70 in November. And what what is my future of soaring going to look like? I could buy a new glider. I could go from a Fifty-five to $75,000 glider to a $200,000 glider, but I'm not sure I want to stress my finances that much. What I've been settling on, I, I, I would love to have a motor glider, like a lot of the old white guys of my age are doing these days, and the electrics are fascinating. Um, but really, some of the most fun I've had are in these First and second generation gliders, the standard services, labels, discuses, flying in club class competitions. And you don't have to really have a $250,000 glider to race. You can have just as much fun in the, in the lower performing gliders where we're all competing together. So I think the club class is, and perhaps standard class with the handicaps, are uh, the future of competition flying. I would love to have that electric motor on the nose, but perhaps the best approach would be to find more friends to fly with and support each other. So without a without an engine on my glider, I can still get back if I land out. So community, cooperation, I think these are the future of soaring. Those are my latest thoughts on uh, where we're headed or where we should go with uh, the future of soaring. Well, thank you, Walter. Well, thank you, Chuck. I was really pleased to be invited to this, and uh, I, I think you've got a great show here, getting to know all of us all over the country, all over the world, and where we're coming from and background. Well, thank you. I'm having as much fun as you all are okay. having. <laughs> Thanks again, Chuck. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another soaring adventure from another great guest. If you love the podcast, please share it with your friends at the Gliderport. It would greatly help us if you subscribe and give us some feedback as well. If you want to interact with us on social media, Michelle will have that info for you next. So stay healthy, stay safe, and we will talk to you next week. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, SoaringTheSky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.